Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. In late December 2009, I had a life-changing experience with my wife. It was that week in between Christmas and New Year, that week where you kind of never remember exactly what day of the week it is, and you've eaten a lot of cheese. It was during that week where we were traveling through Southern Ohio, and we stayed at Angie's aunt's house, and little Connor was just a year old, and she says, hey, I know you guys have some shopping to do. I'll take care of Connor, and you guys can go take care of some of the errands that you need to run there in Cincinnati. And so it was in that evening where our life was changed, because we went for the first time to an Ikea. The first time going to Ikea is an entire experience when you realize all of the labyrinths that you are going to have to go through, the sheer volume of stuff, the sheer volume of types of stuff, the sort of disorientation that you feel as you realize that you have to write down bin bin numbers to then later go down into the warehouse and get the things from Ikea, and then you're going to have to go back upstairs because they didn't have exactly the stuff you want, and you're going to have to figure out what you want instead, and then go back down and try again. All of that was new and fresh, and it came with a side of Swedish meatballs. But that's not the biggest shock about your first trip to Ikea. The bigger shock is when you finally get home and all those flat packaged boxes start to open up and you think that I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put this credenza together and it's going to be great and it's going to be easy and then you look at the instructions or what they call instructions. (laughs) Because the instructions are meant to be universal. They have no words in them. There is a picture at the very beginning of a little Ikea guy scratching his head. And it it seems to say, it seems to imply that if you don't know what to do, you should just call Ikea. I don't know. I've never tried that. But what I have done is built a lot of things backwards from Ikea. All of my Lego building as a child never worked out because the instructions are just not quite that great. Just not quite there. But over time, you learn the rhythm of Ikea instructions. You learn kind of how the the instruction writers think and what they're anticipating you're going to do, and you get better and better at it. This morning, I'm going to be honest I'm going to read you a slightly odd section of scripture. It's odd uh, because it reads a little bit like an Ikea instruction manual. It's odd uh, because at the end of my reading, you're probably going to be asking yourself, okay, where are we going this morning? What what are we doing here? I'll be honest. The text that I'm going to read to you is a little bit repetitive, And it gets deep in the weeds of construction materials. And it lays out a building that seems odd to us. 
But as we approach this passage, I want to remind you that Exodus 26, where we're going to be reading, just like every other passage of the Bible, all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness. And so even though this is going to seem like a strange text, it is meaningful and there is an opportunity for us to see Jesus through it. So here's what I want you to keep your eyes out for. Here's what I want you to be looking for. The detailed nature of the instructions about the construction of the tabernacle reveal to us both the holiness of God and the care and detail that God has made in planning our redemption. Well, we might find it odd to dive into this level of detail on a building for me to read you construction plans out of the Bible. There is real benefit in us understanding and hearing what God has for us this morning. So I want to invite you, if you are able, uh, to please stand as I read God's Word together. It's going to be on the screen behind me, and you're welcome to follow along in your Bible, on an app, or just with the words behind me. But let's hear God's Word from Exodus chapter 26. Moreover, You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully woven into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the five other the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtains in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on each, uh, on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and, a cu- and couple the curtains one to another with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. Eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outmost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outmost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do all for all the frames of the tabernacle. 
You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames and their 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for the corners of the tabernacle in the rear. And they shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top and the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall from the two corners, they shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make the bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle. The middle bar halfway up the frames shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make rings of gold, make their rings of gold for holders for the bars. And shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan, for it was for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of purple, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And you shall it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked in. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns with fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Okay, I'm not going to tell you I told you so. I think that goes without saying. In this chapter, God gives Moses, God gives Moses the plan, the exact and detailed plan of how they are going to build the tabernacle, the place where God is going to be worshiped, but also the place where God is going to send his spirit. And so as we come to this, we should not be surprised that God is very particular about what is going to go on here, that God lays out every detail in exactly the right way. I mean, down to the materials, down to telling them, now, when you put a post on the ground, you need a base on each side of the post. I mean, it's, it goes into incredible detail. So what I want to do to you is try for just a second to give you a picture of what is going on here. Maybe you grew up in the church and you went to a Sunday school where they talked about this and you had a little model and it was great. Maybe you didn't. I'm guessing you didn't. And so when we think about the tabernacle, what you need to imagine is something about the size of half of a football field. 
about the size of half of a football field is all fenced in by an eight foot tall fence that is made with some of these coverings, some of these animal skin coverings that wrap around a huge courtyard. And you come into this courtyard from the east. And as you would come into the courtyard from the east, the first thing you would see would be the altar. And you would smell it. We, we've talked before, and many of you have heard me say, that the job of an ancient Israel, uh, Israelite priest was more akin to a butcher than what I do. Most of their job had to deal with daily making all of these sacrifices and placing them up onto this giant barbecue. And so this altar was constantly smelling of all of the goodness of when you grill meat. When you grill meat, you can always tell when the meat is getting right because you can start to smell the fat rendering. That's when like your neighbors perk up. That's when people who are walking by start to slow down, right? And so that would have been the smell, that fresh cooked meat, those, those rams and those bulls and those cows, that fresh cooked meat that went up. And as they went past there, the next thing that they would see would be a huge basin of water that they called a laver. And then after you went past the laver, there was a tent inside of this courtyard, and that was the tabernacle proper. That was the building, I say building, this portable building that contained the holy place and the most holy place. This was about, didn't take up much of it. It was only about 45 feet by 15 feet. So we're talking a much smaller portion of this area. And inside of there, inside of the tabernacle, there was the bread that they always kept before God. There was a lampstand and there was an altar where they constantly burned incense. And at the back of that, there was an enormous veil. Uh, some reports say that it was, it was thicker than your hand. And as they went through, only once a year would the high priest go through that veil into the most holy place, or some people call it the Holy of Holies, and there they would make a sacrifice once a year on what modern Jews call Yom Kippur and what our Old Testament calls the Day of Atonement. And inside of there was the Ark of the Covenant, which did kind of look like the Indiana Jones version. Uh, I'm not going to lie. They did a pretty good job uh, showing what that probably looked like. And that sat in there with the law of Moses inside of it, a jar of manna, Aaron's rod that had blossomed. And on top of that was called the mercy seat, where every year the blood of the day of atonement would be sprinkled. Now look, I'm a nerd and I'm a Bible nerd. And I can see many eyes glazing over, maybe, maybe glazing over a little bit worse than even when I read because you were standing then. I understand that. I get that. But as the people of Israel were making this, as the people of Israel were following all of these instructions to a T, they would have begun to see something come together. They would have begun to learn and understand what God was doing and what they were seeing and what they would have seen as they built this was a map, a map back home, not home to the promised land, but home to Eden because the tabernacle was a map back to Eden, to being in God's paradise, to being God's people, to being under God's rule. God was showing the people of Israel that they could come back home to him. As they walked past that altar, there were the sacrifices 
were going up, they would see that God was covering their sins with these blood sacrifices. God was making them holy. God was providing a way for them to be cleansed as they walked past this giant uh, basin of water. And as they constructed the holy place, they would know that there is a lamp in that darkness, that God was providing a way for them to walk in his light and to commune with him through the bread that was in there too. Home, home is where we walk with God. Home is where we eat with God. And the people of Israel were being invited back to exactly that. God had provided a way for them to come back to him. Because in so many ways, all that they, were, that they would see inside their tabernacle was all of the blessings that they would have had in Eden. God's presence, God's rule and blessing, togetherness as God's people in God's place. But when they got kicked out of Eden, it's really fascinating because when they were kicked out of Eden, they were kicked out to the east. That's why Stein, Steinbeck wrote East of Eden. But it wasn't like Eden magically disappeared. It wasn't like God just like deleted Eden off of the earth. He did something else. What he did was made sure that we couldn't get back into Eden. And if you remember, what God did was he put a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword to make sure the people couldn't get back into Eden from the east. As the people of Israel walked through the tabernacle, they would have been entering from the east. And after they saw the sacrifices and saw the cleansing water, the veil that allowed them to get into the Holy of Holies, where only the priests could go, the veil was sown with what did the text that we read say? I know it probably got lost on you. I know there was a lot of details in there. But what was sown into that? A cherubim. They were coming back to Eden. They were coming back to where God had invited them to be day after day. And so as they looked and built, the people of Israel would have seen this. The people of Israel would have known this, and they passed this down generation to generation. Eventually, they, they outgrew the tabernacle, and Solomon built the temple. That got knocked down, didn't go well. Another temple was built, and that was the temple that Jesus was able to to worship in, but it was built after the exact same pattern, this exact same pattern of being able to see the story of God's redemption played out again and again, see the invitation of God to fellowship and presence again and again. But when the New Testament comes along, the writers of the New Testament see something else. They see that this was actually a picture of Jesus all along. We miss it a little bit in our English translation because of the way that uh, translations, words, and languages work. But in John 1, when John is describing the incarnation of Jesus, in verse 14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we say, that's awesome. That's neat. But every, every Greek-speaking Jew who heard that would have gone, oh my. Because what John says is the word became flesh and tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. Because what we see in the tabernacle is all of the work that Jesus has done 
for us. He is the ultimate sacrifice that put an end to the need for the temple and tabernacle system. No more daily, weekly, monthly, yearly sacrifices. Jesus has done it once and for all as the lamb who is the sin, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And the laver that was filled with water where the priest would wash over and over again is no longer necessary because Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to baptize us from our sins, to cleanse us of all of our sins. And he does this once and for all, not a repetitive process like they would have had to have gone through. And then he calls us past the angels into his presence into the holy place where we receive light, not from a lampstand, but from the word, the word of God that became flesh and dwelled among us. And he beckons us to come and eat with him, to practice the fellowship that we will enjoy forever and that we sang about already. He invites our prayers to go up to him, just like the altar of incense would constantly have smoke coming up out of it. Jesus gives us everything that the tabernacle promised. Everything it anticipated, we find in him. We have peace with God, not because of an animal sacrifice, but because of the sacrifice of God's own son. We have acceptance and love and forgiveness because of the life and work and resurrection of Jesus. Vern Poitras is a, a theologian and mathematician, which is a wild combo, let me tell you. Um, but Vern Poitras described it, it is, as this. It is as if the glory of God shone out from his throne. And as Jesus stood there, the shadow that was cast was the tabernacle. The shadow of Jesus itself was the tabernacle because the tabernacle is a pale but clear reflection of what Jesus does for us. But the story doesn't end there. The story of God's tabernacle doesn't end there. Because that holy of holies, that central area, that place where only the high priest would go in once a year, holds a little bit of significance for us. Matthew says that when Jesus died, when he was crucified, as he gave up his last breath, that veil, that curtain that hid the tabernacle from everyone else was ripped top to bottom. And when we hear about that, oftentimes preachers will talk about the fact that this is because now we all have access to God. We are all high priests in his presence. And that's true. And that's good. But something else is happening there. Something more than just us having access to God. Because it was in the Holy of Holies where the Spirit of God dwelt. The Old Testament says that the Spirit of God hovered over the mercy seat. And now, now that veil has been ripped. And not only do we have access in, but flooding out in that moment was the Spirit of God into other tabernacles. Because 50 days later, at the Feast of Pentecost... The Holy Spirit comes and rests in every Christian. Today, the tabernacle is not something that you go and see. Beloved, you are the tabernacle now. Jesus, through what he has done, has sent his spirit to live in you. Which is an amazing privilege, but even more to that, it is a call for us to be on mission for what he wants for us.
as we read through all of those regulations, all of the things that should have been made out of, I don't know if you caught it, but every time that he mentioned a piece of furniture, he said, and put rings on it and cover the rings in gold and make sure you have gold poles for it. Why? Because the tabernacle was always made to be portable. It was always made to be on the move and the people of God were meant to take the presence of God everywhere with them that they went throughout their journeys. God was going to use them, as we saw last week, to be a kingdom of priests to show forth who he was and the beauty of his covenant with them and the call to everyone else around them. I love the way that Pastor Eugene Peterson translated that verse in John 1.14 that I mentioned earlier. The word became flesh and in, in Eugene Peterson's rendering and moved into the neighborhood. Beloved, as you and I have been called as God's people, as he has filled us with his Holy Spirit, as he has made us into his new tabernacles, we are called to move into the neighborhood to be the presence, light, and life of God to all of those around us. Beloved, Jesus is inviting you through what he has done and shown through the forgiveness of the altar, through the cleansing of the water, of the washing of the Holy Spirit, through our prayers that come up ever before him, through fellowship with him, through the Lord's Supper, and with one another throughout the week, breaking bread in our homes. As we remember that God is our light who teaches us, we are called to go. Because your job is no accident. Your apartment or your house is no accident. You are not thrown into any place, but rather you are called everywhere you are. And the question for us becomes, Will we join in what God is doing and moving us into these neighborhoods? Let's pray.